0: Than that. Now, I want to give you a warning before we get started. I think first off, there should probably be a warning every time a youth pastor is going to preach, but this warning's a little different. The topic that we're looking at today is not my favorite topic to preach on. In fact, I would rather not. The reason why I don't really like to preach on this is because I know what will happen to me as I prepare for it. I know what I'm going to have to face. I know the things that are going to be revealed to me in that, that, the conviction in my own heart that I'm going to have to deal with. And so I don't like to preach on this subject, but whether I want to or not, God seems to have brought this up over and over and over again over the last few months to me uh, to make it clear, no, this is what I want you to talk about. And so you've been warned um, that this is kind of a heavy topic for me, and it pro- probably will be for you as well. But it is an important topic, and it's one that we need to talk about. So today I have a bottled water here, okay? I pulled this out of my fridge in my office. It's nice and fresh. If you listen close, you can hear it's never been open before now. Did you hear the click? There it was, okay? So it's fresh water. I'll drink it to prove it. Tastes good. It's nice and cold. Very refreshing. Now, also here on this table, I have this small pitcher of water, okay? Now, this water, um, some of you are already a little nervous, and you should be. It's water, isn't it? I mean, it's clear. It looks the same. I'm not going to smell it, but it's because it, water smells like water. So, you know, but I want you to think about this. This this water I also got right before I came up here. And actually, I have a witness who saw me do this. But uh, I got this water from the men's restroom, the urinal, Um in the middle. Okay. So if it's those of you that use the urinal in the middle are laughing right now, but here's what I'm going to do. Okay. I'm going to pour this in here. And as I do, you can see it just kind of blends in, doesn't it? In fact, it doesn't really look any different. It looks the same. And, and I'm not going to tell you if it tastes the same or not, But my question is, now that you've seen that in there, it's been mixed up, nothing looks any different, how many of you in here would want to drink this? No one. I see, I see a few hands, okay? We've got, we've got some attention seekers, some, some thrill seekers, and some survivalists in the group, and that's okay. They're the ones going, nah, there's nothing wrong with that. There's something wrong with it, okay? Now, here's what I want you to think about, okay? Most of us would not drink that. In fact, most of us, knowing that, want to take this bottle and throw it away in a trash can no one will ever find so that no one will ever drink this. Even if they're dying of thirst, they will not drink this water because it's just gross, isn't it? It's a disgusting thought to be drinking water that has been contaminated in this way. Now, here's the thing. This water was pure, wasn't it? And, and we're not okay with drinking water that is even slightly impure. I barely added anything from the urinal in there. But it's enough that it's slightly impure and we're not okay with drinking it. So my question is, why are we okay with living slightly impure lives if we're not okay with drinking slightly impure water? You see, we live uh, thinking that God is okay with us claiming to be these Christian vessels but carrying impure things. We think that God's okay with it, but the truth is we know He isn't. We know He's not, uh, but for some reason we don't seem to care enough to change that. This isn't a new attitude. It's one that gets addressed throughout Scripture because it's been going on for a long time. And one of the most intense, clear, and understandable places we see this addressed is in the book of First John. Now, before we dive into the Scripture, I want to give you a little background on First John. Now, we know John. He wrote the Gospel of John. He was one of Jesus' disciples and apostles. And we know him for writing the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and the Book of Revelation. We know John from this. Now, he wrote 1st John for a purpose. One of his main purposes with it was there were some false belief systems creeping their way into the church. The one that was most prevalent at the time was Gnosticism. Some of you may have heard of this Gnostic belief system. And I'm gonna give you, not to bore you with all the details, I'm gonna give you the very basic, simple picture of what it is. So here's what they believed. The flesh is bad, but the spirit is good. So simply, here's what they could do. Anything they did in the flesh did not affect the spirit, so it didn't really matter. The spirit was kept pure. That meant I could live freely in sin in my flesh, and it didn't matter because my spirit was still pure, and the flesh could not affect it. And so I was really kind of, I had an excuse for the things that I fell into, and really there wasn't a big deal in them. Now some of you are going, that that sounds really wrong, but it also sounds like a real freeing way to live, doesn't it? That I don't really have the accountability of feeling like I have to do what's right. And that's kind of what they were going for, but there was a huge problem that came up with it. And it was the problem of this. When you see Jesus in the flesh, we have a problem. Because if God is perfect, he could not be in the flesh, which was bad. So they came up with this idea. Jesus must not have actually been a man, but probably more like a ghost or a spirit. Or he was a man at certain points and God at other points. But he could never be fully man and fully God together because the flesh is bad. You see, when they change these few things, it changes everything about it. And we have to be careful because this was a very dangerous uh, belief system that had been brought in and John was addressing it. But you're going to find out today that we believe similar things that cause just as much destruction in our faith today. Now, as we dive into 1 John, know this. 1 John is also full of tests. These are tests for people to know for sure that they are saved. They are things that point out the true nature of someone following God, a child of God. And as we look through this passage, I plead with you today to look intently. You may find yourself realizing that you have not been living as a child of God. And some of you in here may even find out that you have never actually put your faith in God. Now that may sound harsh. That may be something you're going, now wait a second, who are you to judge that? I'm not here to judge that. This is between you and God, but as you hear the words from him, I want you to just listen and really think. It's a good day for introspection. And as you're thinking about this, I want you to remember some of the most terrifying words that Jesus ever spoke. In Matthew 7:21 through 23, he says this, not everyone who calls out to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Only those who actually do the will of my Father in heaven will enter. On judgment day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, we prophesied in your name. We cast out demons in your name and we performed many miracles in your name, but I will reply, I never knew you. Get away from me, you who break God's laws. What I want you to know is salvation through Christ is very easy to receive, but it is impossible to fake before God. He sees the truth of your heart. And so today, as we look in our own hearts I just ask that you look intently. It's time to check. We're gonna go over this test from First John and we're gonna find out how we're doing at being the children of God or if we have been ever at all. So let's look into our lives. We're gonna see how we look against the description John gives of a child of God who has had the fruit of the Spirit's work evident in them. So we're gonna be in First John chapter three, starting in verse one. See how very much our Father loves us, for he calls us his children, and that is what we are. But the people who belong to this world don't recognize that we are God's children because they don't know him. Dear friends, we are already God's children, but he has not yet shown us what we will be like when Christ appears, but we do know that we will be like him, for we will see him as he really is, and all who have this eager expectation will keep themselves pure just as he is pure. Everyone who sins by, is breaking God's law, For all sin is contrary to the law of God, and you know that Jesus came to take away our sins, and there is no sin in him. Anyone who continues to live in him will not sin, but anyone who keeps on sinning does not know him or understand who he is. Dear children, don't let anyone deceive you about this. When people do what is right, it shows that they are righteous, even as Christ is righteous. But when people keep on sinning, it shows that they belong to the devil. Who has been sinning since the beginning? But the son of God came to destroy the works of the devil. Those who have been born into God's family do not make a practice of sinning because God's life is in them. So they can't keep on sinning because they are children of God. So now we can tell who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Anyone who does not live righteously and does not love other believers does not belong to God. Those are some harsh words, aren't they? They're really intense to read through. And that's just one of the tests through the book of First John. And we're gonna kind of dive into what I like to call the meat of that and, and kind of figure out what John is saying in this. So John starts off in a really similar way to how we started off today. We started off by singing out, I'm a child of God. I am who he says I am. He has set me free. And this is how John starts off with this fact that he has made me his child. And that's something we need to not just pass over. That is an incredible truth for us. We should find much joy in that, much excitement in that. And it's an incredible thing. And Paul talks about it in Ephesians 1, 5, where he says this, God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do. And it gave him great pleasure. I love the idea that God found great pleasure in adopting me as his son. It's not something that he looked at me and saw me in my helpless state and went, okay, I kind of feel bad for the guy. No, he wanted this. He found incredible pleasure and joy in it, even though it meant having to crush his own son on my behalf. I was the joy set before him just as you were, and he was willing and glad to do that to receive you as his own. That's an incredible thing and we should be full of joy over it. And then John jumps from one joyous truth to the next where he starts talking about the second coming of Christ, where those who are found in Christ will be gathered together with him and we get to see him as he really is. And not only do we get to see him in all his glory, but it says we will be made like him, given glorified bodies that are meant for eternal living in the presence of God. That is something that should wake a believer up in the morning. That should cause us when we're outside to be looking up, waiting for the clouds to part, listening for that trumpet sound, wanting and longing for him to come back. That's an exciting thing, and we need to start getting excited about it. But then comes the test. The next verse, John says, And so those who eagerly await this will keep themselves pure as he is pure. So here's my question. What does pure mean? Now, the dictionary says this, not mixed with any other substance or free from contamination. Let's look back at this bottled water here, okay? When I brought it in, it was pure by this definition. It had gone through a filtration process to take out as many contaminants as possible. And it was good for for me to drink. It was refreshing. It was nice and a good source of hydration, right? But the moment one drop of toilet water hit it, it was contaminated, wasn't it? It was no longer pure. It was kind of disgusting, actually. Some of you are still grossed out that I went into the bathroom and got. It's okay. It's all right. Don't worry. Okay, you don't have to shake my hand. All right? Now, here's the thing. I want you to think about this, okay? We understand the simple science of purity and impurity with this. But does the definition of pure change when we move from the physical to the spiritual? That's my question. Is the definition the same between physical and spiritual purity, or does it change? You see, we in the church have done a great disservice to ourselves and to the world around us by attaching the word purity to a specific set of sins. You see, if I'd come up last week and said, hey, next week when I'm preaching, I'm going to be talking about purity, almost all of you in this room would have spent the whole week going, well, Pastor Ben's going to talk about sexual sin next week. That's what you would have thought of because that's what we've done in the church is we've taken purity and tied it specifically to one set of sins and that is not what purity is about you see in fact in doing that we remove the actual definition of purity and put a new one on it and that's a problem that's the first false definition of purity that we have in the church see Over the years as a youth pastor, I get asked the same question over and over and over again by students from sixth grade all the way up through college and even some that have graduated and have called me asking this question. They say, Ben, how far is too far? Now, most of them are in a relationship that they're wondering, um, how far is too far? I don't want to fall into some sort of sexual sin. I don't want to cross a line that I can't come back from. And, and the problem is, when they ask me this question, they actually reveal something about them that they probably did not want me to know. And, and what they revealed is this, they have a different definition of purity than what they're supposed to. I call it the line. Now, some of you notice this line running right through the middle of the room here, okay? Some of you are getting excited going, the youth pastor's preaching, there's a line, we're playing dodgeball, it's going to happen. I'm sorry we're not hurling things at each other today. Next time, maybe, but if Giles lets me. But here's the thing. I I want you to understand this line right here is how most of us view our spiritual lives. This is how most of us view purity. We see a line and we decide one side is bad. I'm sorry to everyone over here. And one side's really good. You pick the right side, okay? That's how we see it, right? So let's, let's think about this. If I'm way over here, I'm standing way over here on the good side. I, I'm kind of comfortable over here, right? I've got a lot of room that I can walk around. I can go down the stairs. I can come back up the stairs. I can climb up on this riser. I can dance around. I could close my eyes and walk around for a while if I wanted to because I'm far enough from that line. I have some wiggle room, right? So here's my question. If I see something that I want sitting over there by the line and I start walking over there to get it, I'm still okay, right? Because there's the line right there. So if I stop right here and I get what I want on this side of the line, I have not stepped over and therefore I'm not impure, right? I'm still on the side of purity, but some of you were going, now, wait a second. No, no, no. You can't walk from over there, over here. That's not okay. But here's the problem. If purity is this line, then I can. I have a lot of freedom. You see, the real problem with this line is it leaves a lot of gray area. Most of us think a line drawn that we can't cross leaves no gray area. And yet you saw every step that I took towards the line. There was gray area in every step. You were wondering, is that really okay? And the moment we have to wonder, that's gray area. So I'm going to make it even more clear for you, okay? We know God as good, don't we? And so if God was good, which side of the line would he be on? Clearly this side, right? Now, God's not just good, but we know him as perfect, the epitome of purity, So instead of just being right on this side of the line, we're going to say that God is represented by this wall over here. So I want to be close to God. So I come all the way over here by this wall, okay? And I'm looking at this wall, and it's awesome to be this close to God. It's incredible because he's right there, and I am just, I'm right there in his presence. But what happens if I do this? Here's my question. Did I get any closer to the line? Not at all but you're all seeing a problem because no longer am I looking at God. I'm looking over this way. Now, if the line means pure, then I haven't done anything wrong, have I? But the moment we put God in the situation, we're in trouble. Because then when I take a step, I may be taking a step that's still on the good side of the line, but I'm stepping further from God. And every step that I take, I'm getting further and further away from God. And that's not okay with us. We don't think that that's all right. No matter how close I get to the line, I'm getting further and further from God. You see, this definition of purity only works one way when we remove God from it. We have to take God out of the picture in order to have this as our definition. And so that's what most of us do. Because if there's a perfect standard of purity, then the line means nothing. And so we ignore that and we live right here. We play uh, a not very popular game on the game show network that I like to call how far is too far, and we get right here next to the line, so we can see over it. We see things that we maybe kind of like, but we don't really want to go over there and get them, but I can enjoy them from a distance, right? I can think about them as long as I stay on this side of the line, or if I do step over, I can just step back. No big deal, right? As long as I don't step way over that line. If I'm over here, that's, that's a problem. But if I'm kind of straddling at times or back and forth, that's how we view our spiritual life is as long as I'm on this side of the line, I'm good. As long as I do most of my living over here. We cannot see that as purity because the, the real issue is we do have to remove God in order to make this work, but we can't do that. God is there. God is real. He is the perfect picture. And when we put him in this, we have so much gray area and God does not work in gray area. He doesn't use that. You see, God is, and this is something we should really appreciate about him. He is clear cut. He doesn't use this line drawn. God says this, purity is, is, this is how it works. You either are pure or you're not. That's it. It's not any place where you have to be questioning. You either are or you aren't. We cannot be living in a way that says, well, but there's a little wiggle room, not, not with God. It doesn't work that way. I want you to think about this. When God is involved in purity, it's no longer about our proximity to the line. It's much more about what you're walking towards, isn't it? Because if I'm walking this way towards God, I'm walking towards what is the epitome of purity. And the moment I turn my back on that, I'm no longer seeking what is pure. I'm going to give you a personal example from my life for you guys to see this. I'm going to walk this way because when I was in sixth grade, I came out of homeschool into public school. And one of the cool things with that is our sixth graders in my school, we got to play on the middle school football team. So I stepped into the locker room my first day. The eighth grade boys had already been there. They'd played a scrimmage against another school. And we got to come in as the school year started. Um, and so they had their lockers all set up. And one of the parts that they set up in their lockers, they like to bring in pictures that they'd hang up in their locker. Now, these are pictures of things that I had never seen, but things that kind of shocked me at first. And then it didn't take long for me to be enticed by these things and drawn in and curious and wondering about these things. And then I spent the next 14 years of my life struggling with an addiction to pornography. And it just continued. And I kept moving further and further away from what I thought was purity, that line. I didn't really want to fight it. All I wanted to do was hide it from the people who were close to me. And I got to this point 14 years later where I'm standing as far as I feel like I possibly can be from purity. And then my sin was exposed. No matter what I tried to do, no matter how much I tried to hide it, it was out. Everyone was going to know. And then I was met with a huge dilemma. I had to fight my way out of it. I no longer had the choice to continue forward because of the damage that it had caused and what I needed to do to recover from that. And so I decided, okay, I want to fight my way out of this and I tried. I tried. And I realized something. It is very hard to fight an enemy that's standing behind you. You see, this is another biblical word that we have taken the power out of. It's this word called Repentance. We know the definition of repentance is this, to change one's way of thinking or to turn away from something. You see, I had to repent from this sin, not just try to walk backwards through it without really facing the consequences that I had caused. I had to repent. I had to turn away from it. But I was terrified to do that because here's what I thought I was going to see. I thought I was going to turn around and see that line way in the distance with a bunch of obstacles and trials that I was going to have to go through in order to get back to it. And on the other side of it, there would be God waiting for me, but not until I got there. See, that's how I viewed purity, just like this line and the floor. But you know what happened when I turned around and I faced this way, I didn't see the line at all. You know what I saw? That that perfect picture of purity was no longer way over there on the wall it was running towards me with arms open wide ready to accept me back into his home it was the holy father wanting me it was jesus with scars in his hands saying i paid this in full and as he embraced me he said just come home just come home You see, my my definition of purity changed in that moment because he said, here, just come home, follow me. And I realized something with every step that I took in the direction that Jesus was leading me, purity was no longer about a line at all. It's not about a position, it's about a pursuit. And that's what it became for me was this pursuit of Christ because if he is the picture of purity, if I am not pursuing him, then I'm not pursuing purity. I had to battle through that. Now, turning around and repenting, did that take away what I had done? Did that take away the natural consequences of my sin? No, I still had to face those. I still had to battle through those things. I still have to fight those things. I have to continue fighting and moving forward to purity, but it didn't matter anymore about this line at all because the moment I faced purity, he made me clean. And he brought me out of it. It's a beautiful thing that John writes in 1 John, where he says, Hey, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Part of repentance is to turn around and confess, to admit, I know this is wrong. I know that I've sinned against you. But I also know that you are faithful to forgive. You see, all the way over there, I knew about God. I knew that he was faithful, but there was an issue. See, there's an issue with being all the way over there in sin. And that's this, we feel this weight on our backs in that moment. We feel something going on that is really frustrating. And this is one of the biggest struggles for the believer who is caught up in sin. Is we feel this thing called shame. Now I tell this to students all the time. I say this, shame is the lie that sin tells. And here's why I say it that way. Because the moment I step over this line, I hear shame say this. If you turn around now, he's going to see what you've done. And he's not going to want you anymore. There's no way he's going to want to bring you back. In fact, he's probably standing on the other side of that line going, "Mm, I'm not sure I want you back. See, that's what shame does. And it says, you know what? The only way that you're going to feel better than, than what you do right now because you kind of feel awful is is just just do another thing that helps gain some pleasure in this. And so you step a little bit further thinking this is going to help. And then more shame comes in. See, now you've gone way too far. He doesn't want you anymore. He can't fix this. And if you turn around now, everyone's going to know what you've done. See, shame holds us back from repentance by lying to us over and over again. It's the voice of the enemy reminding us of things that are false, We know what's true, but it doesn't seem to make a difference on us because we're so afraid of being exposed in our sin. I will tell you this, it is way easier to turn around yourself than to be forced around by God because that's how I had to go through it. That was not fun. Not that any time it's really that fun, but it would have been way better if I had stepped out of it rather than having to be forced around I want you to really think about this. John concludes this section of scripture by drawing out this clear picture of what a child of God looks like. He says this over and over again. A child of God does not continue to sin. That's a scary and beautiful statement. It's scary because many of us in here are going, now wait, I know I'm a child of God, but I really am am struggling with sin. And John's flat out saying, nope, a child of God does not continue to sin. Here's what he's saying, okay? When we place our faith in Jesus, we are indwelt with the Holy Spirit. And here's one of the works of the Holy Spirit that he does. He convicts us. So the moment I step over this line, I have this shame that I carry, but then I have the spirit that's in me saying, don't listen to that shame. I want you back. Just come back. You know, this is wrong. Just come back. It's okay just come back. I've forgiven this. I've paid this. Just come back. I'm faithful. Just turn around. And we have that voice, but the further and further we step this way, it's like we are stifling or silencing that voice within us. And so it's really hard sometimes to hear it, but there are times that that voice gets louder and louder. And it may be as you're sitting in here today that you're going, okay, I need to deal with this. That conviction is how God stops the child of God from continuing to sin. He draws us out of it. He calls us out of it. He doesn't force us out of it, but he does give us opportunity after opportunity to come free from it. We need to realize that that is how he works. That is what his desire is for us. And the only real remedy of bondage is freedom, we keep running further and further into sin because shame sends us into this cycle. I feel bad. Now I've got to deal with those feelings and I can deal with them in a legitimate way by reaching out to God or I can deal with them in an illegitimate way by reaching back into sin to feel better now rather than have to go through hard things. And when we step into that cycle, it just repeats and repeats and repeats and repeats until either someone steps in and breaks it or God exposes it for others to see. And that's hard. That's tough, but this is how God draws us back. He doesn't want his children going through the pain of sin, but also we need to think about this. The moment we became children of God, it was no longer about holding us up against the standard of the law. You see, that's what it is for a person who doesn't know Christ is they are judged guilty because of their works against the law of God. After we become children of God, We now have a father in heaven who loves us. And I want you to think about this differently. Most of us want to live as if I have to live by a standard of the law, but we should be living like this. I don't want to hurt my father. I don't want to hurt him by doing this. If I look at it that way, it changes what I'm willing to do and not willing to do. Because if I think about the ways that he's loved me, it's hard for me to want to hurt him. I have to get that through my mind. He sees me as his child. He adopted me, made me a co-heir with Christ. He has done things I do not deserve. Do I really want to hurt him? Paul talks about this internal battle that's going on within him and all believers in Romans chapter seven, starting in verse 14. He says this, so the trouble is not with the law for it is spiritual and good. The trouble is with me for I am all too human, a slave to sin. I don't really understand myself where I want to do what is right, but I don't do it. Instead, I do what I hate. But if I know what is good and what I'm doing is wrong, this shows that I agree that the law is good. So I am not the one doing wrong. It is the sin that's living in me that does it. And I know that nothing good lives in me. That is in my sinful nature. I want to do what is right, but I can't. I want to do what is good, but I don't. I don't want to do what is wrong, but I do it anyways. But if I do what I don't want to do, I am not really the one doing wrong. It is the sin living in me that does it. I have discovered this principle of life, that when I want to do what is right, I inevitably do what is wrong. I love God's law with all my heart, but there is another power within me that is at war with my mind. This power makes me a slave to the sin that is still within me. Oh, what a miserable person I am. Who will free me from this life that is dominated by sin and death? Thank God the answer is in Jesus Christ, our Lord. So you see, it is in my mind, I really wanna obey God's law, but because of my sinful nature, I am a slave to sin. See, Paul really knew that there was a battle within him. And in fact, he's being very vulnerable in explaining this out that, hey, I know, I'm Paul. I'm the guy that everybody listens to, that everybody wants to hear. All these churches want me to come and visit them, but I need you to know something. Every day I'm battling with sin and I'm struggling with it hard. I want to do what's right and I don't do it. I don't want to do what's wrong, but I do it anyways. He's struggling hard in this. And this is a struggle that we can relate to because many of us go through this on a daily basis. And we need to realize something about what Paul said, though. He kept bringing up this statement. Now, when I do sin, it's not really me who's sinning, but the sin that's within me. That sounds kind of like a cop-out, right? Like, I'm not really accountable for this. It's not really what I'm doing. It's just this sin within me. Well, it's too bad. Now, here's what Paul's doing. He's saying, no, I am completely and fully, fully to blame. I'm fully responsible for my sins. Completely. But here's the issue. That sin nature is no longer my identity. Who I am is a child of God. So when I sin, I am not being who I am. He kept identifying as there are two people. There is the old sin nature. And then there is my new nature created through Christ Jesus as a child of God. Here's the issue. In the morning when we wake up, we have to decide something. What am I going to put on? Am I going to put on the old flesh that should have been crucified with Christ this morning already? Or am I going to crucify that and put on the newness that is found in Christ? It's not like when I sin, I'm dinging the newness up. It's not a new car that you're driving around and bumping into mailboxes with. When I sin, I'm choosing to not be in the newness. I'm not being the child of God that I'm created to be. It's sitting over here unused and I'm living fully in the flesh. I'm allowing myself to be the old man who is dead and gone and yet I'm still picking it up and going with it. We have to realize this. Paul was saying, hey, you're not being a child of God when you live in sin. John's saying the same thing. Those who are children of God, they don't do this. Stop doing this. This isn't being a child of God. A child of God lives this way. Stop this. Neither of them are saying, hey, if you are thinking you're a Christian, but you're struggling with sin, you're not saved. That's not what they're saying. That's not what I'm saying. I want you to hear me clearly and correctly on this. What I'm saying is this, if you claim to be a Christian, but feel no conviction for your sin and see no fruit of God's spirit in your life, then you need to check your heart. If you're looking and saying, okay, I I know that I like God, I know that I go to church and I understand a lot of what they're talking about. I really like it. I really appreciate it. I feel better when I'm there. But I can just sin freely and not really feel any conviction. And honestly, when I look at my life, I don't really see evidence of God in it. That should terrify you. That should be scary. That should be something that causes you to sit and think, okay, God, what is going on? Why is this happening? John is saying that genuine believers will not continue to sin freely. They're gonna have this conviction when they sin and they're gonna to want to repent, to confess, to be cleansed and to step back into a pursuit of purity. When we continue to sin as a believer, we're gonna find ourselves living in doubt of our salvation. I was talking to Janae uh, about this sermon as we were driving home from her parents' house from our Christmas time and, and I was explaining to her what I'm gonna talk about. I talked to her about the passage I'm going through and she asked me a question. She said, okay. So based on what you just read, based on what you shared with me, do you think that you were saved in your time that you were living in that sin? And here's the terrifying answer I had to give to her. I think I was. See, that's what sin does. It causes us to doubt. I couldn't say, well, I know I was. You know why? Because the way I was living was not like a child of God. I would have no idea whether or not I was. Because if I looked at my life, I saw no fruit of anything but sin. And that's a problem. And we need to wake up to that. Some of us are fully saved and living over here thinking maybe I'm not, maybe I'm not. It's time to come back. Some of us are living over here thinking, no, I'm good to go. It's all right. I just don't feel bad about this because maybe it's not that wrong. We've never really known God is what John says. If you're sitting here today and you realize that you've been living in the flesh and ignoring your true nature as a child of God, I don't want you to leave before coming before God and casting off the shame that is holding you over there. He is a loving father. He does not stand over here with his arms crossed and his foot tapping, waiting for you to come back. No, he's calling you. He's chasing you. I love the fact that uh, purity is a pursuit of God, but before I am ever pursuing him, he's been pursuing me. And we need to realize that. He wants you back, no matter what shame is telling you. It's time to turn around. And before you leave today, go before him. Turn around, repent, it's time. If you're sitting here today and you're realizing, you know what, I don't feel God convicting me of my sin. I, I'm sinning and I don't, I don't really feel like anything's telling me that this is wrong or that I, that I shouldn't be doing this. In fact, I feel just kind of Normal. If that's you, that's kind of terrifying. That's where I found myself because I'd gone so far over and I had to realize something. Do I know God, yes or no? And so before you leave here today, if that's where you find yourself, I beg of you, take some time to go before God and say, okay, God, why do I not feel conviction? What's going on? Have I just silenced your spirit's voice in me or have I ever had it in me at all? See, that's the beauty of the book of 1 John. We want to be sure. If you're not sure, make sure. Find out, go through it. See those things. If you're going, man, I'm not living like that, fix that. Don't just read it and say, wow, that's hard. We want to be children of God. If we want to represent him, if we want to live in freedom, it's time to live as he calls us to. Don't just sit here and go, okay, you know, I'll deal with it sometime. Don't leave here without dealing with that. And some of you are sitting here and going, you know what I've realized? I've never put my faith in Jesus at all. I've been trusting in the fact that I show up at church every once in a while or trusting in the fact that I'm kind of a good person. I don't really live over this line very much. If that's you today, I wanna give you some incredible news. You see, no matter how far over this line you feel like you are, you are never so far that you cannot turn around and find Jesus right there. He wants you. He shed his blood on a cross for you. His blood was pure, no sin. He lived without sin for the sake of you, being able to bring you back into right relationship with God through his sacrifice, paying for your sins. And all you have to do is put the weight of what it takes to save you in his hands and nothing else. Put your faith fully on what he has done. His death on the cross and his resurrection where God gave him all authority in heaven and on earth. And that authority is there that he can give you new life. That he can bring you no matter how far over that line you go. Isaiah 59.1 says this, The arm of the Lord is not too short to save, nor his ear too dull to hear. He can reach you. He's waiting for you to turn around and say, okay, I'm ready. And so today, if you find yourself in a place where you're going, I have never put my faith in Christ, but I am ready to do that, it's as simple as this. Before you leave, just say, okay, God, I'm ready to turn around. God, I'm ready to put my faith fully in Jesus Christ, his work on the cross, his resurrection, and nothing else, knowing that it is through him and him alone that I can be saved. That is it. And it's not even about what you say, it's about genuine belief in your heart that he is who he says he is and that what he did paid for your sins. That's it. That's all it takes. You see, salvation is easy to gain. We can't fake it. We gotta stop. We gotta start living in a way that's different. We gotta change our definition of purity and stop acting like there's a line drawn that we can walk right next to and start pursuing after Christ. If you're looking for a New Year's resolution, let's make it a new life resolution, right? If we are in the new life, it is time to walk as though we are. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for this opportunity to study your word, to get to know more of what it is that you call us to. But God, I pray that you would wake us up to the false definitions of purity that we have. That we would start to realize, God, that it is not about a line, it's about you. It's about chasing after you. And God, that when we have fallen far from that, that God, we truly are just one turn, one repentance away from finding you right there, bringing us back home like your prodigal children. God, I just pray that you would help us to wake up and to change in the ways that you've called us to. And God, if there is anyone in here who has not put their faith in you through Jesus Christ, that God, you would draw them to yourself today and you would make today the day that they respond to the call of the Spirit in their hearts, that today would be the day of salvation for them. God, we praise you and we thank you for your word, for who you are and for what you've done. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let's be dismissed.